Hiya folks, I'm Ian McKenzie from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. In today's episode of Political Bites, we are joined by Lewis Bloodworth, one of our PhD students at Kent. Lewis is researching the relationship between love and politics, especially in the tradition of radical political thought. And today, Lewis is going to give us an overview of why this is such an interesting and important topic. So over to you, Lewis. Hello, my name is Lewis Bloodworth, and today I'll be talking about my area of research, which focuses on the two concepts of love and politics, with an emphasis on the radical tradition in political thought. I understand that many of you might actually find that connection curious or difficult to immediately recognise. Why love and politics? What would link these distinct categories and why would their connection be important? The topic of love might make some of you quite squeamish, actually, uh, since cliché is hard to avoid. Or you might think love is the lesser of the pair. Politics, for instance, is the study of great events and powerful politicians. Uh, let's leave love to the poets and artists with their more fanciful inclinations. But I believe love is just as important to politics as politics is important to love. For me, love has, throughout human history, represented a subterranean force working behind closed doors, in quiet corners, and contemplated glances. It has always been there, and it has always possessed a revolutionary potential, especially in the light of the great transformations of the 20th century, where love became even more important to understand to our understanding of radical politics. Hopefully what I have to say today might actually help answer some of your questions or your reservations and make you more interested in love as a political concept. So to begin with, I would like to say that I believe one of the best definitions of love, even if it's quite a simple one, is proposed by the Dutch philosopher Barak Spinoza. So in his definition he says that love is nothing but joy with the accompanying idea of an external cause. Love for Spinoza is a mode of affection, a feeling which is produced in the relation between the self and the world. It is wedded to all kinds of feelings from happiness, ambition, lust, anxiety and apprehension. Love begins as a passive force. It invades our world and it is our task to delve into its causes. We seek what it is that makes us feel these things, how we can preserve our feeling of joy and how we can proliferate our loves. Part of the failure of love for Spinoza, or how it can lead to hate, distrust or envy, is that we do not see ourselves and the object of our love as part of a wider whole. That we all exist in a world determined by forces beyond our control, and that love does not exist in a realm of pure freedom. For love to become free, it would require us to recognise our situatedness within the causal chains that shape our lives, to see that... The loves that we have and share are not alien, but wholly part of this world and ourselves, and that every evil and every good are also part of this world and wholly determined by it. If we do not affirm this, we will end up beholden to superstition, supposing that every ill fortune in love is a consequence of some malevolent force, or worse, that we end up blaming our loves for any ill feeling that they may produce. Passive love leads to a tyranny of superstition, and it is conducive to hate, which becomes especially dangerous when developed in groups. An active love apprehends love not as a spiritual ideal, usually guided by some form of fantasy, but as a real process 
that must suffer the misfortunes of fate and affirm both the good and the evil of those we love. Only by affirming the necessity that governs all of our lives can we be free to truly love without recourse to those passive affections, such as hate, jealousy and resentment, which alienate us from one another and prevent us from confronting the world together. We are then led to ask important questions about what role has love to play in a political ethics, and how do we achieve a love fit for the world, especially when love might end up distorted by superstition, by hatred, or by the narcissistic tendency of love reflected in ambition and the desire to dominate. So from reflecting on just this brief passage on Spinoza, it could even be said that love and hate is the dialectic of all civilization. Uh, Sigmund Freud, in his essay on civilization and its discontents, actually commented something similar, formulating that where there is eros, the drive to life, there has always been thanatos, the drive towards destruction and domination. Love throughout its history has often been instrumentalised as a means of control, most pointedly the domination by one sex over another, love serving a useful smokescreen for the proliferation of power. It goes without saying that feminism is perhaps the greatest resource for anyone who wants to examine the violence that love can perpetuate, the patriarchal structure of our familial relations, corrupting love and making the home a prison rather than a site of care. But whilst love has of course served a function of domination, it has also subverted those very structures. The great romantic tales of Tristan and Isolde and Romeo and Juliet actually testifying to the stubbornness of love to resist this instrumentalization. Now into the 20th century, love would become a central site of political consternation. Free love, so to speak, was in the air. The countercultures of the Beats, the Hippies and Punks that exploded onto the political scene in the mid-20th century flaunted all social values. They were demanding revolution not just at the level of the economy, but at the level of society and culture. They were cultivating what I would call a new stylistics of life, not beholden to the past. Free love became the mantra of a generation of young people tired of war, exploitation, of oppressive and boring monogamy and familial life. They wanted change and they practiced what they preached. Love became eminently political, new waves of feminism and gay liberation developing out of the tumultuous 60s were grounded in a critical love, a love that was formed in communities of solidarity and mutual care. For them, Love didn't just have to be freed from the family. It had to be freed so that everyone could experience it to the fullest, no matter who they were or how they differed. So, I mean, I hope by now you already have a flavour of why love is just as important to politics as politics is important to love. Although I suspect some of you might be thinking, where now for love's radical potential? Hasn't the war been won? We are hardly living in a time of overregulated love where patriarchal norms and familial dogmatism hold sway. Well, I will agree with you to an extent. The, the countercultural movements were quite successful in liberating love's potential, in exposing its plurality, which was latent but repressed. But I do not think the war is over. The issues that have made love a tool of, for domination still subsist, even if they are weaker than they were before. Sexual violence and homophobia are still central political issues that we have to deal with today. However, I will also say that those, that isn't just the only threats to love that exist, but there are actually two others which I'd like to draw attention to now. 
So the first is what the social theorists Michael Hart and Antonio Negri have referred to as a love of the same. This form of love is not just located in the family, but proliferates in society at large. Its discourse is that of the nation, of the people, of the sect. It only cares for that which is similar and familiar. If love cuts itself off from difference, then it can become quite violent. And for those of us living in the UK, we are familiar with how Brexit actually mobilised the discourse of friend and enemy, a populism which preached a love of the nation and, at times, a hatred or distrust of the foreigner. Love, in this regard, can be a great weapon in the hands of those who would serve to divide people into neat little camps. And we can see how love can be very dangerous. Love can quickly descend into fascism. And I'd ask these hypothetical questions. Didn't Hitler love the German people? Didn't he express his desire to care for them, to protect them from the evils of the world? In this sense, fascists are great lovers, but their love is often predicated on a paranoid fear of loss. The slogan of the fascist lover, to quote Sarah Ahmed, would likely be, because we love, we hate, and this hate is what makes us together. I now wish to name the other danger that love might face today, indifference. Indifference is just as great a threat to love as the love of the same. And I would argue that it, that it is perhaps even more pervasive. In our uh, postmodern era, we have experienced a great shake-up of our values. Or to paraphrase Marx, all that is solid in love has melted into air where once love was grounded upon a foundation of the family and propped up by religious dictums that declared its sanctity, we now find ourselves with so much freedom to love as we please and how we want. The cultural theorist Herbert Marcuse, writing in the 1960s, warned of the dangers of the pervasive cultural trend of what he termed repressive desublimation, which, for those not versed in foreign theory, meant that Sexual mores, which had inhibited our desires, were being broken apart and actually replaced, replaced with a new set of values which were just as repressive. These were the values of capitalist valorization and consumerism. Marcuse was not uh, a conservative by any means, but he worried that if love became just another commodity and if all our pleasures could be satisfied at a whim, then love would cease to have value and our intimate relationships would merely re replicate the exchange of commodities. They would become cheap and expendable. So love under contemporary capitalism is therefore conducive to a wider cynicism in our capacity to love in an expansive way. It makes people into the image of commodities and makes love as an object of enjoyment rather than as a means to produce greater social bonds and communities of care. Indifference makes love incapable of truly transforming the world. Now, call me an old-fashioned romantic, but I think love deserves more than this. I think it deserves, as the poet Arthur Rimbaud once demanded, to be reinvented. How are we then to move beyond the images of pure old sameness and hedonistic indifference to reinvent love? Well... The first gesture is to see that love for a great deal of its history has often been dominated by a misguided pursuit of completion, of the fulfilment of an individual's desires. Perhaps some of you are actually familiar with the Socratic myth told by Aristophanes in Plato's Symposium that love's origin stems from the prehistory of mankind, 
where we were once four-legged and two-headed giants who challenged the gods and their power, only to, only to be cut in half for our impudence and thus destined forever to seek our other half. This is actually where the cliché of our other half comes from, but it also has a legacy in Freud who supposed that we always end up replicating our first experiences of love as children, chasing after that first pure instance of care and joy. But personally, I do not believe that love should be conceived of as dependent upon a lack, which we must then fill, for this would leave us forever dissatisfied, forever chasing after a phantom of love. I believe love's radicalism lies in its twin elements of risk and otherworldliness. Love needs to be a little bit scary, a little bit disorientating. It needs to be a fundamental encounter or event if it is to truly shake us from our conservative habits and inclinations. It cannot be simply about pleasure. If anything, pleasure can make love become rigid and stultifying. This traces back to what I was saying about Spinoza and that transition from passive to active love. As the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze once stated, to love is to try and explicate, to develop these unknown worlds that remain enveloped within the beloved. Love isn't about people or pleasure, it's a process that transforms how we think about ourselves. It is a proliferation of difference that shakes us from the conservatism of habit and makes us think in new and creative ways. Hence why love has been so wedded to art and dreams of utopia. We need to think again then about what it means to love so that we can again build on the subversive legacy of love and thus transform our own political imagination. I will conclude by saying this. The first act of any revolution is always an act of love. Thank you. Thanks for a whole host of fascinating insights, Lewis. Well, that's it for episode five. We'll be back soon with a new one. As always, if you have a topic you would like to see us discuss, then please contact us via email, paulirnews at kent.ac.uk or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, which you can find in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 